0: From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudaliewicz. There are striking similarities in the kind of stance Turkey or Russia display on the world stage. govern themselves domestically, actually. Still, many prefer to measure these countries against the West's standards in everything from governance to culture. That's probably because many liberals in these places still think in terms of catching up with the West, while conservatives are still eager to highlight their superiority to the West. It seems fruitful, though, to note that Turkey's or Russia's elites have been dealing with their disappointments uh, with the West for quite a while. So comparing these countries and comparing their evolving authoritarian tendencies should be interesting and should be instructive. Joining me to discuss all this and more, we discuss the authoritarians and their stance in the world, Aisha Zarokbal, reader in international relations at the University of Cambridge in Britain, and Sergei Guriev, professor of economics at Sciences Po in Paris. So let's discuss this. Let's Start with you, Aisha Tsarakol, talking about this disappointment with the West. Is it genuine? Is it real? Or is this just uh, some kind of a political device elites in these countries are using to establish themselves from their Western counterparts?
1: Uh, can I say it's both? <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, I think there is a genuine well of frustration that goes back um, some time to the 19th century, perhaps earlier, you know, this uh, feeling of not quite belonging, whether we're talking about Russia or Turkey, Ottoman Empire. So I think that is there, that it does exist. Uh, I mean, we can discuss at what level of society it exists, but it's definitely there. It's not completely made up. But at the same time, I think politicians uh, use this. You know, they also, at times, when it suits them, exaggerate it or, you know, appeal to it rhetorically. So I think it's both. It's not completely made up, but it's not, it's not uh, just genuine either. Yeah.
0: Why do you think that um, these regimes often tend to become personalists? They have these uh, leaders at the top who essentially become the, sort of the face of of their countries?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a number of different reasons. Um, we've seen with what happened with Trump in the US that personalization can happen actually in any kind of system from any kind of cultural tradition. So I don't think it's necessarily specific to Turkey or Russia, <laughs> but I do think there are maybe cultural repertoires that, uh, that make it easier in the semi periphery or in this like liminal space between, you know, East and West, um, it's perhaps easier uh, to justify at times, you know, the strong man tradition or we need, you know, in the case of Turkey, it's, you know, you have Erdogan now, but before that we had, you know, Atatürk, you know, it's the same kind of one person saving the country, solving this problem of, you know, standing and stature. Uh, vis-a-vis the international
0: system. Okay, thank you. Sergei Gurev, when I'm I'm looking at what's going on in Russia and in Turkey, and I I do have friends in Turkey as well, uh, journalists who've been targeted, uh, activists of various kinds, we also see that um, governments in these countries, they're also targeting even universities. Why do you think is that happening? And are these similarities real, actually, between these evolving authoritarian regimes? Yes, uh,
2: thank you very much, Maxim, for inviting me uh, to the podcast. I think uh, similarities between Turkey and Russia are real. And I think what is striking is that these authoritarian regimes are next to Europe geographically. While Europe is such a machine for transforming formerly authoritarian countries into democratic and uh, press market economies. And the fact that uh, Turkey and Russia are moving in the opposite direction is quite striking. They're not unique in the sense that you also have um, Serbia, which is kind of moving in a similar direction. And as I Aisha said correctly, part of that is using the nostalgia from imperial times. And you can feel that, almost feel that in Serbia as well where people refer to great Yugoslavia when Serbia was uh, much bigger than it used to be, when it is now. So the similarities are real. And uh, going back to your previous question, there are, of course, differences, but um, the regime is personalistic exactly because what Aisha said, there is a real or perceived need for a strong leader, for a strong hand, because these leaders sell the idea that we don't want checks and balances, We want to give power back to the real people. This is a normal populist narrative. And once you have that, once you talk about the real people being homogenous, being similar to each other. In Turkey, that would be eastern part of the Turkey, outside of the big cities on the West Coast that have been exploited by In fact, Ataturk's uh, Kemalist state, secular state, dominated by well-educated elites. So you don't need many people representing this people, the the real nation. You just need one person because everybody's the same. You don't need to protect minorities. This homogeneity is very, very important. The same, of course, is in Russia. And uh, there, you would also say that there are over-educated elites who don't represent the real people. And... uh, In Turkey, that's been this movement for 100 years, moving towards a pro European Kemalist state. And even though Erdogan calls himself uh, Atatürk's successor, he's actually been dismantling Atatürk's uh, legacy quite consistently. And uh, in Russia, it's also the same in the sense that Putin's idea is pro-Western elites don't represent the real people. And so it's not surprising that both leaders actually fight universities exactly because universities embody those pro-Western, pro-European values. So I'm not surprised there. And whatever stands in the way of creating this personalist power where this uh, leader says I have a direct report with the people, I represent the people. I don't need journalists or scholars or, for that matter, courts or parliaments.
0: Okay, thank you, Aisha. And you have this uh, very interesting article I enjoyed reading about the struggle for recognition among those countries who might be described as uh, being on the West's periphery on this or that way. Can you talk a little bit about this just to detail, uh, just to, you know, give an outlook of your idea to our listeners?
1: Thank you. Yes, so this is a co-authored article with uh, Rebecca Adler-Nissen from the University of Copenhagen that came out in the special issue of the Journal of International Organization: The Crisis of the Liberal International Order. We were, you know, there was a call for IR scholars to think about (laughs) why is the liberal international order in such crisis. In this article, we essentially argue that you know the liberal international order is not just an order that you know provides um, material, concrete, or economic benefits <laughs> to its members, but it's also a recognition order where you know members, as all orders are, think about what kind of belonging that they have from the core of that order. So, as such, the liberal international order has a certain social hierarchy that's built into it. And it goes back to your earlier question, uh, Maxim, about, you know, (laughs) the frustration. Uh, Is this real? And we essentially say that the liberal international order, despite its promises of equality and equal treatment for its members, many who joined at a later point uh, or at the kind of on the margins of it, uh, Eastern Europe, um, Sergei talked about uh, Serbia But you could add, you know, Hungary, Poland, uh, others to that list, definitely Turkey, Russia. They feel not fully recognized. They feel that even if they did everything the order demanded of them, these countries think that they wouldn't get full recognition. They wouldn't be treated quite as equals. And then, of course, politicians use this this feeling, this frustration. You know, populist politicians use that to their own advantage and undermine the liberal international order from within when they can you know, the ones that are already members, yeah.
0: Do you think there was some kind of threshold in that development? Like, for example, was it uh, Turkey's development with the European Union, this whole story of um, Turkey originally aspiring to join and then gradually being disappointed with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting kind of historical counterfactual. Like, (laughs) could the last decades unravel differently had the European Union been more open to Turkey's um, membership, And I think, I mean, Kemalists would say, no, you know, Erdogan from the very beginning, you know, was planning to do what he did. And maybe I think as a person Erdogan might have, but his party was a coalition party. And, you know, before he consolidated his power, he was trying to kind of please different uh, elements <laughs> within the AKP and also in general society. And in the first years, in the first decade of 2000s, uh, they were pursuing a very pro-European Union type of policy. There that, that was general broad consensus around that. And I think had the European Union been a little bit more open to recognizing, uh, you know, Turkey's efforts at that critical juncture, maybe things, I, but it's, it's hard to say, I mean, because you could argue it the other way around, that <laughs> European Union was treating Turkey too kindly, <laughs> was giving uh, Erdogan and AKP kind of too much of a, Blank check. They were getting accolades that they didn't really deserve. Just um, you know. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's a hard, hard question to answer. Mm-hmm.
0: It seemed like there was a certain evolution in the very beginning, under Putin even. But then, imagine it was discussion with NATO, for example, or something else. And after that event, the situation changed and the tendency changed.
2: If you talk about specific countries, uh, you would find different turning points. And in Russia, it was definitely the rise in oil prices and standoff with uh, oligarchs, with Khodorkovsky in particular. And uh, this is not about uh, the global problem of the West, of the liberal international order, or so on. At some point, Putin understood he doesn't need to be pro-Western because he has a lot of oil money. And uh, in order to preserve his power, he needs to put uh, one or two oligarchs in jail. So that is, uh, is kind of a different story. But if you ask a global question, what was the threshold? I think global economic crisis 2008-2009 was a big shock to the world, where China sailed through the crisis, while the West suffered from the crisis. It was actually the first big recession global recession which originated in the West. It was not Mexico. It was not Asian crisis. It was a crisis of failure of regulators in the U.S. And that hit the whole world. And so that undermined the legitimacy of the international liberal order. Now, I highly recommend this issue that Aisha mentioned, this issue of the Journal of International Organization, which is devoted to the crisis of international liberal rule-based order is great and has many excellent articles but overall I'm not actually that pessimistic and I think we still can recognize uh, the correctness of the statement of the end of history by Francis Fukuyama even he himself probably doesn't believe in that anymore but if you think about what he was writing about in late 80s early 90s depending on whether you read the article or the book you see that his main argument is there is no alternative to the western ideas to the Western ideology, Bolsheviks and Nazis lost. And even today, the only credible alternative is the Chinese model. But Chinese model lacks universalism. People don't want to move to China. People don't want to become part of Chinese world. People want to say we are like China. We are like, uh, some people would say, we are like Singapore, but that is not really what they mean. They mean, I want to become a personalist dictator and pretend to be a successful, competent uh, authoritarian leader. But actually what I want to build is a chronic capitalist system. So myself and my friends are very rich. So that is what we observe among authoritarians around the world. But um, interestingly, there is no alternative in the West to the West, to the Western ideology, to the Western ideas, to to the liberal order. The liberal order doesn't deliver, especially since the 2008-2009 crisis. But uh, what else can deliver? You can say there is a radical Islamism. Which is, by the way, is mentioned in Frank uh, Fukuyama's uh, book thirty years ago. But uh, it's also not a universalist idea. Uh,
0: yeah, I was gonna sorry uh, because I was gonna get to discuss this because this is a uh, very interesting attribution that I just wanted to discuss.
2: But, but let me let me just say one sentence here. Modern autocrats, many of them, pretend to be part of the. West. They don't build an alternative ideology. They say we build sovereign democracy. We build illiberal democracy. They don't say we create a North Korea. They pretend to do something the West does. And uh, that kind of shows they don't have a new ideology, an alternative ideology. Some of them kind of vaguely reject liberal values or political correctness. But overall, the very fact Then they say, we are also Democrats, but we are better Democrats. We are Europeans. We are just better Europeans. Europe has lost its ways, but we protect the European values. That is what Putin says, not Erdogan. But uh, this, per se, suggests that alternative is not there.
0: Thank you. Uh, Aisha, and to you, I actually wanted to discuss this briefly with you as well. Do they see, uh, you know, the subjects of your study on uh, the struggles for recognition, do they see, uh, according to themselves, as some kind of an alternative to the West?
1: I think domestically that rhetoric is, you know, present. I think it, both in the, the case of Russia and also Turkey that we, you know, somehow, what we're doing is better than the West. The West is, you know, in decline. You know, we are the ones. (laughs) But actually, if you think about, I mean, I do agree with Sergey. There isn't really uh, a well-thought alternative, but there is that rhetoric, you know, look at us, you know, we are, we have better morals, you know, we are helping, well, Turkey has this rhetoric of, you know, uh, helping this and that, uh, you know, in Syria, in Africa, and so on. So, and Russia, Russia has similar uh, claims about uh, upholding, Christian values and things like that. I do agree completely with Sergey that isn't a genuine alternative. And I actually, I did want to go back to the threshold you know, question because it ties into this. You know, what uh, Sergey said about Russia and oil prices, I think the financial crisis, 2007-8, uh, the aftermath was had a similar effect on countries like Turkey were not uh, immediately hit by the financial crisis in the way that the West was, a lot of investments, uh, foreign direct investment came into Turkey. And in fact, the period where AKP and Erdogan got unnecessary accolades and really allowing Erdogan to consolidate his power was that period from 2008, I would say, to 2013 Gezi protests, uh, this period of about five years just... Uh, money flying in and increasing, like, if you you can see the traces all around Turkey, just all these infrastructure projects. And uh, what I mean to say is actually that growth that Turkey experienced economically that Erdogan sold as his own doing was actually very much driven by, you know, Western uh, cheap money. Not just Western, also money came from the Gulf increasingly, but it's kind of like, what do you call it? Like a paper tiger or like a uh, like, um, clay feet. I mean, it's just, it doesn't really have some kind of genuine—I mean, I'm not an economist—but it doesn't really, you know, it all depends on <laughs> cheap credit being available, and that's why Erdogan has actually run into trouble in the recent years uh, because he's not able to finance his infrastructure projects. Also, pointing like economically or ideologically, there isn't really much there. There, it was kind of like this hyped, you know, bubble, like this image of greatness that's being funded by others. So
0: how long can you sustain it? Is, it's certainly not a real alternative. Okay, thank you. And um, Sergey, now uh, back to uh, informational autocracies, which I think is a great subject and uh, a subject of two articles, I think you did with uh, Daniel Treisman from UCLA. And, and now you have a book that will be out soon. So this is your way of describing what is new in uh, authoritarianism. Of today, So if you could talk briefly about that and give us an outlook, an idea of what that issue is, why are they different and what it tells us about, you know, the age we are in right now. Yes, uh, thanks. Indeed, in the series of
2: papers and the book, uh, we talk about how modern autocracies are different from traditional autocracies of 20th century, which were based on fear. Today's autocracies are more and more increasingly, as we show with the data, are relying on the manipulation of information. This is kind of not a new idea. If you go back to Brzezowski's description of sources of uh, stability of authoritarian regimes, he will talk about lies, fear, and economic prosperity. It's just what we're saying is the balance has shifted towards lies and uh, money. And modern autocrats rely on censorship, Targeted repression, deniable repression, which is very important. So when they kill somebody, they don't say this is to scare the opponents. No, they say that's not us. We don't know who killed that opponent. Uh, when they put opponents in jail, they say that's because they fake the certificate to serve in the army, fake the medical certificate, like it happened to Demirtas, uh, uh, to the other Demirtas in early Erdogan years or because he didn't pay taxes, or because uh, he violated the parole, and so on. So it's not political. They deny having censorship, and uh, they pretend to be Democrats, and they say we are popular. And this is, I think, uh, a very important difference, that they pretend to be a democracy, they pretend to be popular. And, of course, economics helps. And uh, most stable regimes like this are the ones who benefited early on from economic growth, like Aisha was talking about, Erdogan, the same as true with Putin. Sometimes early on, they make uh, right economic choices and this creates popularity boost. And then with the popularity boost, they can use some resources to invest more in propaganda, more in censorship, in captation of the elites. This is how it works. Now, these regimes are better suited for modern reality of open borders, cross-border uh, flows of money, information, investment, of global media, of global human rights NGOs. And so basically, it's not North Korea. North Korea is not doing very well compared to, say, Russia and Turkey, which uh, don't kill lots of people. Uh, Turkey jailed uh, tens of thousands of people at some point. Still, it's not uh, hundreds of thousands. And and in our case, Turkey, in our money, Turkey is kind of borderline with a fear-based autocratic regime. And Russia may be moving in that direction right now. And so what we see in today's world is that a lot of autocrats want to do this, want to pretend to be Democrats, because that's how you can actually play the game with Western investors, with Western governments. You also hire lobbyists in Western capitals. um, That also applies both to Putin and Erdogan and other autocrats as well. And for a while, you can sustain that. Now, to what extent you can stay this course indefinitely is a great question. And uh, I think Venezuela provides a great example where while oil prices were high and a uh, charismatic leader was in place, Chávez, this regime really worked without mass repression. Once oil prices came down and Maduro replaced Chávez, suddenly they had to make a choice either to move on to less authoritarian regime or go back to 20th century, which they did. And the uh, same we saw in Belarus, which has never been a soft regime, but now it's really, really repressive. And maybe this is what we are observing right now as we speak in Russia, where fear is uh, penetrating all parts of the society, unlike what it used to be the case just a couple of years ago. So we don't know uh, how these regimes end up. But overall, we see that majority of autocrats today in the world are much less bloody than they used to be and uh, much more interested in pretending to be popular. And sometimes they are popular, but pretending to be democratic, pretending to be open, rather than openly repressing their opponents.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, someone talking to you from Moscow, I'm uh, observing all this is um, both scary and weird. And uh, do you think, uh, I mean, something, uh, I mean, so many questions actually, because it's all kind of sounds new and, they seem to be in control. I mean, the government, the political structures, they seem to be pretty much in control, very safe. What do you think, to what extent, comparing them to previous incarnations of uh, authoritarianism?
2: So a hundred years ago, I would say, Stalin's model was probably better suited to reality. Today, since they also want to consume in the West, right? And to use uh, smartphones and Mercedes cars, and even drink champagne, whatever they say about the deficiencies of the West. What they do is this machine where you invest a lot on censorship and propaganda, especially online, you can actually stay pretty much in control. And you don't need to kill thousands. You just need to put some people in jail, need to introduce self-censorship, you need to invest a lot in online censorship. That is really, really important. This is what Lukashenko failed to do, and that's why he has a crisis he has, because he didn't really know how to do that as well as Putin does. So that may actually work pretty well. But today... Popularity of Putin is shrinking so much that he may actually say, well, I'm sorry, the 21st century dictatorship doesn't work. I have to move back to 20th century dictatorship. Who knows? We saw that in Venezuela. We may still see that in Russia. One important uh, difference I would mention is it's not just Putin's popularity, which is uh, going down, but also the feeling among normal people, ordinary people, not just political activists or journalists. Normal people feel fear. And so the first time in 2021 we saw in the polls that people are afraid of return of mass repression. 52% in a recent poll said that this fear is real. And so I think uh, this kind of shows that the 21st century model may stop working. It's a great question. I would say that Putin's Russia and Erdogan's Turkey are somewhat different. In uh, Turkey... Elections are not as tightly controlled. You can lose election in big cities, and uh, who knows? Maybe after Erdogan, the whole political equilibrium will be different. In Russia, as you know, Putin has lost zero elections in uh, important cases.
0: Uh, yeah, and actually, to you, actually, I wanted to discuss this briefly with you. Actually, the Turkey's politics does seem to be more competitive than Russia's and uh, some other places in Europe's south. So is it is it really so? Uh, to what extent Erdoğan is in control and uh, or maybe is threatened by some real challenges, you know, in the political process in Turkey?
1: I think, yes, Sergei is right that the elections, because of the election model and the fact that there are so many little districts, like everybody goes and votes in their primary school, it's a system that's more difficult to manipulate <laughs> I do think Erdogan has been trying to manipulate elections for, <laughs> in the last few months, uh, but he's not fully able to. And there's also, of course, voter suppression in the East and you know, <laughs> controlling all media channels and the opposition candidates not being allowed to really appear on TV and stuff. So th- there is all of that. So I don't think we can really say they are competitive elections, but they are, I think, <laughs> more competitive or less out of the control of Erdogan, at least the municipal ones than the Russian case. I think what makes the Turkish scene different is, I mean, Turkey, I don't think was ever a fully functioning democracy, but there is this long tradition of quasi-democracy. Already there was much of a civil society built, like, um, you know, so Turkey went into Erdogan years with that civil society kind of pre-robust. And also the losers (laughs) in the current regime are people who feel quite a strong ownership of the state and government mechanisms, so they never fully came to terms with the fact that they are out of power, which has made opposition—not opposition parties, but actual civil society—very resilient. And they, despite you know this atmosphere of fear and people being imprisoned and being purged from their jobs and so on, uh, there seems to be. I am always struck by this. People think when I Ar- say when Erdogan goes, you know, they they think they will. Get, maybe this is delusional, but it keeps the opposition going. They think that they will get <laughs> uh, power back. That's what keeps, uh, you know, the opposition going.
2: There is another big difference between Russia and Turkey, which is economic difference. And I mentioned that uh, modern autocrats use money. And uh, of course, uh, Turkey is a much more private sector, competitive economy. And wherever Erdogan can, he uses state resources, right? So he used, uh, there is actually research which shows that in the elections, state bank's resources are used to, to uh, influence uh, regional elections. So we shouldn't think that Erdogan is not trying to do what Putin can do. But Putin has much more in state coffers. And part of that is oil, oil rent is used uh, for political purposes. And the other one is state ownership. And Putin reinstated state ownership in a big way because of the failure or perceived failure of privatization of 1990s. So that is a very important part of the narrative in Russia. And part of that is true that many mistakes which were made during market reforms and privatization in the 1990s legitimize the return to state ownership. And once you have state companies, these state companies can be used by the autocrat for political purposes. Uh, Russia and Turkey are not Norway. If you're in the office of the president, you use state-owned enterprises. And the difference is that in Russia, state controls all commanding heights. In Turkey, you have dynamic private sector, including big conglomerates, small, medium-sized enterprises that export to Europe. You have uh, banks, uh, private banks, which are very competitive so it's a completely different story. In that sense, this is something which creates the basis for the civil society I was talking about.
0: Okay, and um, probably rounding up, do you think that with all the similarities that these regimes? have between themselves? Some kind of block, some kind of uh, tying up between themselves. Is it possible in terms of, I mean, there are people who think that there is a real sort of autocracy international. These people talk to each other, learn from each other and, uh, you know, scheming some kind of world domination project. So (laughs) do you think that um, a block between themselves is actually possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, in Turkey, there are all these, uh, you know, conspiracy theories that Putin uh, warned Erdogan about the coup attempt in 2016 and so on. So, of course, they do talk to each other. I mean, the extent to which, <laughs> you know, we could try to read the tea leaves, but they are also competing with each other, but they, you know, in certain areas, they do collaborate when it suits them. Is it a real block? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think everybody's out for themselves. Uh, I mean, what makes both Putin and don't, even though ideologically they're different, but they're both survivors, so they will do, do whatever you know suits them at the moment and won't worry about what they did last year. So that makes uh, this relationship possible. I mean, I think in the macro scale, you know, the similarities between Russia and Turkey go back like centuries. I don't mean just authoritarianism or whatever. I I think because of where they are and their relationship with both Europe, but also Asia and like the experience, <laughs> I've mean, going back to empire of Genghis Khan and so on. Like, right, there are, there are so many similarities that actually produce, those structure produces some similar outcomes, of course with local variation, but. Uh, I think there is, you know, grand history driving these countries in similar directions, Uh, not always in sync, but definitely recognizable patterns.
2: I agree. Let me let me add that these people do talk to each other and learn from each other. So those tricks of survival, political survival that we just been discussing, these tricks, they learn from each other. They perfect their techniques. They discuss what works and what doesn't. That's for sure. But they are ready to compete. And we talked about Libya and Syria, where they competed. We didn't talk about Caucasus, where they supported opposing parties. Just in 2020, there was a war where Turkish weapons went against uh, Russian weapons. And more of that may happen. But what is the real authoritarian international is China, and Chinese technology. I think this is what we should worry about. So when you get sanctions from the West, you go to China and get uh, advanced technology from China. And China is of course producing face recognition, walk recognition, uh, surveillance technology, which uh, a lot of autocratic countries import from China. And this is what I really worry about. So overall, I think a uh, Western model is great and it creates prosperity and hope But uh, we live today in the world where innovation may come from access to big data and violation of privacy constraints. And this is what China does well. And this is what Europe cannot do because of all kinds of privacy rules that we respect. And the same may be true in the U.S. And so China may actually drive the innovation frontier. And this is where autocrats are really excited about uh, importing surveillance technology from China. And this is uh, what the real leader of authoritarian world is. China, rather than Turkey, Russia, or for that matter, Venezuela or North Korea.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, Sergey, I mean, you are right. And this calls for a separate conversation about the digital sovereignty and uh, digital tools that uh, these uh, newly weaponized or well, some kind of instruments are used in countries outside of the West. And we should do that, actually, at this I should thank you, thank you, Ayesha Zarokov, thank you, Sergei Guriev, for this uh, fascinating conversation. We'll be back. Uh, This is the Canon Institute. This is The Russia File, a podcast and a publication online. Thank you for listening. We'll be back. Cheers. Thanks.
1: The Russia File podcast is a product of the Canon Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Canon Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Canon Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Canon Institute, on Facebook at Canon.institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash